turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And go ahead and stand with me as you find your place there in 1 John chapter 1. We'll read the first four verses. A few weeks ago we looked at verse 5 through 10, and we're going to drop back and, and look at the first four verses here. Titled the message, Fully Enjoying the Gift. Fully Enjoying the Gift. You know, gifts are special and have significance, and there are all kinds of different gifts. We love giving gifts. We, we enjoy receiving gifts. Um, we look back and reflect on times where we've been surprised or when uh, maybe a gift that has lasted a long time. Um, but there's no more special gift than the gift of our relationship with Christ. And it's described in Scripture as a gift, the gift of God. It's eternal life and eternal relationship an eternal home in heaven through Jesus Christ. And so we're just talking about that for a few minutes and looking at this incredible passage of Scripture this evening. Let's begin reading in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which is with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Let's look for in prayer this evening. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank You for the way that John conveyed truth here in this passage. And as we glean from it, Lord, I pray that You would impress um, just the beauty, the wonder um, of the relationship that You've offered to us. Lord, impress that upon our hearts. And Lord, I pray that tonight we'd endeavor to grow in our relationship with You. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. This book of the Bible, it's a pastoral epistle, or in other words, John pastored these people. He had a great deal of care for them and love for them. He had pastored the church at Ephesus. Paul started this church um, during an amazing revival, a, a spiritual awakening. He went to Ephesus intending to uh, make a visit there, planning to stay. It's, it's recorded about three months and ended up staying the longest he stayed at any one place. He stayed there about three years. And, and it was because of the effect of the ministry that he had here. There were incredible conversions and, and incredible growth. And because of that, he just continued to invest there. When you think about John, someone who pastored these people, John, as we look at his writings in the book of John, and then um, first and second, third John, the gospel of John, first and second, third John, and then in Revelation, you realize John is an incredibly passionate man. You think about Peter as passionate, but you know, Peter was, he was a great leader. Um, he had a big mouth and had a lot to say, but John had an incredibly big heart. And he demonstrates that, he expresses that in these verses. This was the church um, that he wrote about while he was um, in Revelation. He, he said, you know, nevertheless I have somewhat against thee because you've left your first love. For John, love and relationship was important. He, he understood the significance. He would consider himself the, the closest disciple to Christ because just he valued relationship. He, he knew the significance. And, and what does that tell you about John? Well, he cultivated a depth in his relationship. Because, because he placed a value on it, 
He spent time with Christ. He was close to Christ. He, he cultivated depth in his relationship with Christ. It had special significance to him. That's who John was. And that's who the man is that's it's talking to us here in this passage. He was talking to second and third generation Christians. And, and that came with um, opportunities, but also burdens and just realities. The, the overarching message here in the passage was that a close, spirit-filled fellowship with a father and son John's telling these people it produces a joyful life. It produces a clean life, a discerning life, and a confident life. And he just, he wanted to convey this as clear, he conveyed it incredibly clearly in this passage. This intimate relationship with God will result in a close relationship with other Christians. And he's telling these people it will lead to profound joy. And he just passionately explains that throughout the pages of 1 John. He's talking to people who are living in a city full of iniquity, full of idolatry. Um, they had this amazing, amazing temple, some of the most um, elaborate temples ever created. They had a Colosseum that it's recorded would seat 24,000 people. But these, these places of worship and celebration were home to pagan rituals and sexual idolatry. And because of the darkness of sin in these places, the light of the gospel shined that much brighter. We understand that in the darkest places, a candle shines incredibly bright. Here, a candle wouldn't put off much light, but, but you turn out all the lights and suddenly a candle could light and be seen. The light could be seen in this whole room. In Matthew 24, 12, it says, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. So for these second and third generation Christians, John could see that because of all this iniquity that was around them, because of the environment they were in, their love for the Lord, their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, it was beginning to wane. It was beginning to become cold and dull. Because of the darkness of sin, the light of the gospel shined that much brighter. And John was just combating their fears. These are Christians that had fears, real fears. They had apprehension. They had difficulties. And the gospel presented this incredible contrast. John's just painting this picture. The standards of Christianity looked incredibly difficult to these people just surrounded by this paganism. You know, their parents, man, they look back at them. These are saints. These are people who are called out. These are people who experienced this incredible revival as Peter preached and as people were saved and as they gathered and, and, and there was incredible revival taking place. They understood the things that they were struggling with. In John 15, 9, it says, If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John wrote that passage of Scripture. He understood that, hey, if you're going to be the called out person you're supposed to be, there's going to be a distinct difference. And, and you're second and third generation Christians. You're living in a pagan culture, but it's important for you to commit and to distinguish yourself. And there are certain things that's going to make, that will make you different, give you the power, the ability you need. In John 14, 17, 14, it said, I have given them thy word and the world hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is Christ in John. John's recorded these words, but Christ is saying it. John understood that as second and third generation Christians, they were not in danger of being destroyed. 
they, they were already and they were in danger of being seduced. John understood that for, for Christians at the church of Ephesus, Christianity wasn't in danger of being destroyed, but it was in fact being changed. So John writes an incredibly personal letter with no, no formal introduction or conclusion, just a passionate plea with a church he pastored, get to know the Savior that John was so familiar with. That's what this passage is about. John cared deeply for this church. In chapter 2, verse 1, he addressed them as his beloved children. And so he defined his purpose. In verse 4, he wanted their joy to be full or to be complete. He just wanted them to enjoy the life and the opportunities that genuine Christianity provided. In chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I've written this so you won't sin. I want you to avoid the pitfalls that are out there. Satan wants to destroy you every single day. He says, I've given you these truths, something you can focus on, something you can meditate on, something you can be anchored by, because I don't want you to live a life of failure, a life of regret, a life of guilt. I want you not to sin. And then in chapter 5, he wanted them to have assurance of eternal life. So that's his purpose. Three incredibly important thoughts. So let's just look at these first few verses and take some truth. I have three points, and then my fourth point would be application. First thought here is Christ is real. John says, hey, first of all, I want you to know that Jesus Christ, the person I'm writing about, is real. In verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. The definition of real is actually being or existing, not fictitious or imaginary as a description of real life. Just for a minute, stop for a minute and just think about, catalog with me if you would, the things that are most real to you. What's most real to you? Well, in this moment, most real to us are the people around us. Most real to us are the pews you sit on. You're experiencing these things. They're real. They're not fictitious. No one can walk in here and try to convince you that the person next to you is not there or fictitious. No, it's real. You're experiencing it. Um, we, we understand the car we go out there in the parking lot, and Lord willing, it's there when you get there, and, and Lord willing, it starts, but the car you drive is real. You, you fully expect it to be there. The home you go to and you enjoy the bed and those covers that you've enjoyed curling up in the last few cold nights, you know, those are real. You enjoy them. You're surrounded by them. You experience them. You appreciate them to one degree or another, or, or maybe you don't appreciate some things that are real, and we don't have to go there. But, but real things are, are things that are not fictitious. He's writing, John is writing, and he's emphasizing the fact that Christ is real. It's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to focus on other things. For me, it's easy to get busy. It's easy to get preoccupied. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to take our eyes off what's real, according to John here in this passage, what's most significant and important, and, and onto things that are so much lesser. John's saying it's important for you to focus right now and to think about a God, Christ. He's real. That which was from the beginning 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. John is saying, I want to tell you about Jesus. This was an aged fisherman thinking back and reminiscing. There was a day, he says, where I was sitting there mending my nets and I really heard him. He spoke to me. I saw him. He says, I looked on him. John, John, because of his experience, could relate to that to us in a real tangible way. And he says, and by the way, to, count, to counter the false teaching of Gnostics or mystics in that day, he says, our hands have handled. We as disciples, as the apostles now, Christ has gone back to heaven, but, but let me tell you, the church at Ephesus, I handled Christ. I, I actually physically saw him. I, I, he called out my name. He called me to himself. He called me from my fishing nets to follow him. And that's why I'm here preaching and teaching to you today is because I've experienced Christ in a real way. And, and he's in, in the most passionate way trying to make this real and express this to these people he cared so deeply about. There's, there's nothing worse than something really nice and something you really want, but you can't get your hands on it. I mean, for most of us, a million dollars is something we absolutely can't and maybe never get our hands on, okay? Let's be real. But bills, we, there are plenty of those, right? They're real. We, we might not want them, um, but they're real. The, the million dollars it might be real, but it's not real to us, right? We, we probably aren't gonna experience that, okay? So maybe it's real to someone else, but it's not real to us. There's some things I struggle with. I'm going to list some that I struggled with envy. One would be um, maybe cars or new cars. You see a new car come out, what do you do? You evaluate the car. Do I like that car? Okay, so I like Chevy trucks. And every time they change a Chevy truck and the design, I evaluate it. Um, there was one, the Avalanche. I don't know if they still make it or not. I could care less. I never liked it in the first place. But as much as I like Chevy trucks, and please don't hate me if you like the Avalanche, I called that the rubber trucky. And instead of a rubber ducky, I called it the rubber trucky because it had so much rubber around the front of it and on the back of it, it just didn't even seem like a truck to me. So new cars come out, I evaluate them. Oh man, that, you know, they did a good job. Wow, that's, that's, that's a good one on top. That one's gonna sell. A lot of those are gonna sell. Well, if, if I go to a car show, man, I love getting in cars, imagining having a car, even though I've never had a new car. I've had great cars, but never a new car. So, but I, I'm so tempted by it. I go to the show, I look at the car, I sit in the car, I enjoy, I, I look at the features, um, kind of try and understand the tech. I don't get in real deep into engines or, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to talk car trivia with you. Um, I just like good looking cars. And when they come out and, and it's something I enjoy and I look at the gadgets, the tech, RVs the same way. I don't know about, it's something with wheels, I guess. <laughs> RVs are the same way. I think they're the coolest thing in the world. I stood up in the pulpit years ago and said, everyone loves um, RVs and I never heard the end of it because I guess everyone doesn't love RVs, but, but I saw uh, an RV go down the road today and, and um, I, Talk to Rochelle on occasion about RVs, and she says, well, yeah, we could have an RV if it's this small. And I think, okay, 
what could you do with an RV that small? So I'm always looking at RVs in relation to size, and I saw one that was that small today that would meet her criteria of an RV that we could maybe have someday. And I didn't, I didn't recognize it, so I had to look, I had to drive fast and get and see the front of it so I could see who made it. I mean, I just had to figure it out. And now, you know, I'm tempted to go online, might not, but check out this RV. How many does it sleep? How, you know, how many features does it have? You know, this small RV. I have a small wife, I'm blessed, um, that's fine. That works great, but a small RV. I gotta figure out how to get used to that idea, okay? Uh, Probably never gonna have an RV, but again, envy kicks in. Boats, it's the same way. RVs, I, you know, I envision traveling, going and seeing places. I guess that's why it's so, you know, romantic, the thought is, if I have this RV, then I'm gonna travel, I'm gonna see these places, and it's just so convenient. Grew up in a station wagon, going to Massachusetts every year. Man, an RV would be an incredible upgrade, right? Boats, man, boats are fun that way too. I mean, boats, the things you can do. You can go fishing, you can take, if you have the right boat, you can take, go skiing or tubing and, and just enjoying the water. Man, those are all fun things. Um, but until you have it, it's not real to you. It's not something you can enjoy and spend time with. You can't handle it. You can't tell people about it. I've never had one. It wasn't real to me. I just envied it. I just wanted it. I just saved up my money and eventually got it. It became real when I got it. Well, for me, um, let's be a little more realistic. The tool aisle at Home Depot. That can realistically become real to me. For years, I used DeWalt, DeWalt Yellow. DeWalt did a good job. I can tell you all about, I can get into the technical specs on cordless drills from the first one I saw my boss have when I was 14 years old, a skill brander and then Black and & Decker, and those were junk. And so Black & Decker got the DeWalt brand and bought it and put it on a drill, and now Black & Decker makes DeWalt and has for decades. And people say it's really good, but it's a Black & Decker. But they held up well, and everyone used them, and for decades they were the, the tool. But here lately, Milwaukee has come out with some amazing tools. And I've had people tell me Milwaukee's the tool. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Milwaukee is actually made a corded drill and made a whole hog and made the first hammer drills, portable corded hammer drills and band saws. But they aren't a, a cordless um, battery operated tool company, okay? They just, they just package these things, but man, have they packaged them nicely. And there are so many Milwaukee tools that I walk into Home Depot or any place selling tools, and I have serious tool envy because every single week or month, they're coming out with a new cordless time-saving tool that if you work with your hands, you want that time-saving tool. I have tool envy, and, and my box that I put my cordless tools in is, is they won't all fit in there. It's sad. But I do use them all. My point is just, they're things that are real. We use them. We experience them. We enjoy them. Not trivializing things when talking about a tool, but we have a relationship with that tool. That's why we can laugh about DeWalt or Milwaukee, because Chevy or Ford. Man, we've experienced these things. We've handled them. But these spiritual truths that John is expressing are so much more significant. It becomes real to us when we have it, when we use it, 
and even more, if not most of all, when we share it. Read verse 1 with me again. That which was from the beginning, it preceded everything in significance, in importance. God preceded all, everything. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard through the pages of Scripture, John could say, I've heard him myself, which we have seen, the apostles, the disciples, which we looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. This is life-giving. God is life-giving, so important. God, Jesus Christ, is real. He, he needs to have that supreme significance in our life, and, and John is communicating this. The second thought He's real. We can have a relationship with Him. You and I, we're offered, we're afforded through Jesus Christ a relationship with God Himself. But that relationship means to us what we've made it, what we've made of it, what we've taken advantage of. And that's what John's trying to do. He's, he's trying to help us to engage and take advantage of this relationship that is so important, that's so significant, that's being offered to us, this gift. And he says in verse 2, he says, for the life of God was manifested, and we've seen it in Christ. And we bear witness and to show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying we can have a relationship with Him. John's telling him, hey, there's something awesome. And I want to make sure and pass that along to you. You know, when we have something and, and it has value to us, to be able to share it with others, what does it do? It adds value. Because not only have we received the benefit and we've enjoyed it, but now wait a second. Now the person I share that with, they receive benefit. They've enjoyed it. We've, we've multiplied the benefits in that way. The life was manifested. Jesus Christ, he's saying, um, Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago. And John says, by the way, I was there and I saw him. I had, I had that relationship with him. It's better than any tool, Milwaukee or DeWalt. It's better than any boat, RV, or car. It's, it's an eternal gift. It's an over, overarching gift that it's better than a, a pet or a house or a pool. It, it's something that's eternal. It's better than the things we give ourselves to on a minute-by-minute -minute basis that at times consume us. It's so much more important. This relationship with Christ is an eternal relationship to the extent that you and I make the choice, we make the decision, I'm going to invest in this relationship. I'm going to pour my life in my relationship with the Lord. I'm going to give Him the time, the energy, the focus, the thought that He deserves. Then that relationship has depth. It has meaning. It has significance. This relationship, it's a trip. It's a journey. It's something all of us are on. It's a never-ending relationship with Christ. In Psalm chapter 38, verse 4, it said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What's the psalmist saying? Hey, experience 
God in a real way. That's for us to do. That's the choice for us to make. We don't need to experience him in a limited way. You don't need to come and experience him through the through the words of a preacher. You don't need to just come and experience him through the words of a teacher. You don't need to just come and experience him through the wonderful expressions of a choir. Those things are important. They're significant. significant. They add value to our lives. But that's not the limits. That's not the reach. The Lord wants to reach down into our hearts in a personal way and have a personal relationship with us. Something we can rely on. Something we can get strength from in the moment. Moment by moment. Day by day. The Lord wants us to develop this relationship we can have a relationship. And John is saying, this is what I've experienced. And this is what I need you. I want you as a church of Ephesus to experience. The psalmist said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you ever eat a meal because it's good? Good for you? Okay, so you have, you can choose the different cereals you want, right? And um, there's all the good tasting cereals. And then there's Raisin Bran. And there's shredded wheat. I had some this morning. It was good for me. And then there's oatmeal. So you know there's a benefit. There are nutritional benefits. There are health benefits. And we do it because it's good. And then there are meals that are good. You eat them because you like them. You enjoy them. You eat as much of them as you can, as often as you can. The psalmist is just saying, hey, your relationship with Christ, he's expressing it in relatable terms. This is something that tastes good. It ought to appeal to us. We have to desire it. We, appetites are developed. Appetites are something that we develop with effort and time, if it's significant, with effort and investment, we can develop the appetite for spiritual things. The psalmist is saying, I've developed this relationship. It's a real relationship. It's meaningful. I've developed it, and so it's significant. It has great value to me. He's saying, it's your favorite meal. It won't make you sick. You don't have to give it up. It's great for your spiritual health. It's great for your physical health. It's great for your emotional health. It's great for your relational health. The benefits of your relationship with Christ can't be overstated. It's real. He's real. Each of us ought to, we can, enjoy our relationship. He's, he's challenged us, don't get hooked on other things. They're calling for our attention. It doesn't matter if it's any number of things, and we could list a thousand things we can give ourselves to. But get hooked on your relationship with Christ. Invest. Spend time. You know, one of the most thoughtful expressions of satisfaction with something is sharing it. And when we do, what does that bring? It brings joy. And so verse 4 tells us the purpose, the result, the effect of your relationship with Christ when it has this kind of depth. Verse 4, And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. John's just saying, I want you to experience what I've experienced. God's real. We've touched Him. We've heard Him. We've handled it. We've enjoyed it. 
Invest in that relationship. It's real. You can have it. And the relationships bring joy. This is the stuff that makes you happy. That's what he's telling us. He said this is the stuff that dreams are made of. You think about gifts, however you received them, the ones you really enjoy. You know, the bad gifts, they're the gifts that don't work, right? The batteries don't last very long. Have you ever been like me and you went to the fair and a guy was demonstrating he could cut a penny with a pair of scissors, you took him home and you cut the first penny and it was dull, right? I thought he had a stack of pennies there. He cut with that one pair of scissors that never got dull, right? You know, a good gift is one you, that works as you hoped, that does everything you expected. But this is a gift that John says, it's gonna exceed your expectations. Even the best gifts, the batteries wear out, the tires go bald, the motor gets weak, the car gets dense, we get tired of it, they age. And most gifts, when it comes to material things, Scripture says they're just going to burn up, they're just going to corrupt, they don't age well. But for us, if we're going to have joy, it's because we spend time with the Lord, because we walk with the Lord. Without that, as a Christian, we can't have joy. You don't spend personal time with the Lord. If you don't walk with the Lord, if you don't spend time in prayer, if you don't invest in your relationship, we lose our joy. And that's what he's telling these, this church at Ephesus. But with effort, discipline, spiritual exercise, comes growth. And with that comes joy. And the last thought. This is a gift that needs to be shared for all of us. You know, you think about if you have something that's really special, if we don't want to just share it, maybe we want to show it off. But we enjoy telling others about those gifts that mean the most to us. And sales and marketing, what's the most successful strategy? We know this, we understand, it's word of mouth. It, it, things um, become viral, why? Because one thing, one person gets an idea, one person then shares that. And then as it goes out, others share it. Um, word of mouth is incredibly successful. When you have satisfied customers, you can expect return business. Stop and think just for a minute with me about the value of this gift, the eternal relationship that we have with God. And just think about the value of this gift. Man, an eternal home in heaven. You look around at, at the fighting and wars and and politics and um, just the preoccupation with stuff and all the things our world struggles with and think for a minute of a sinless place where we'll spend eternity and imagine that God's preparing for us today and has been for 2,000 years. To be able to think of a home in heaven where loved ones have gone and we'll, there'll be an incredible reunion with those that have gone on before us. Think about the peace, this gift that provides peace that passes understanding. Such an incredible gift. Think about the relationships that we enjoy and we can share. Think about the forgiveness that God gives us and the grace that He gives. Think about His love. What an incredible gift. What a privilege to share that with others. And that's what John's saying. Hey, if your joy is going to be full... It can't be full if you keep it to yourself. It can't be full if when you receive this gift, you don't pass that on to others. If you believe it's real, 
If it's meaningful to you and you've invested in that relationship and that relationship you have with the Lord is dynamic and it's growing and it has significance in your life and you're receiving the blessings of it, fullness of joy comes when we share that with others and we share the gospel and we share what the Lord's done in our life. There's a reward that comes from that. When you share an invitation, when you tell someone what the Lord's doing in your life, when you witness, when you invite, many times for you and for me, we've experienced the things we fear the most, when we overcome those fears, often bring the greatest joy and none greater than witnessing and sharing our faith. And John's just challenging this church. He loves them. He understands that faith, if it's not cultivated, begins to die, begins to weaken. He understood the culture and the battle they were facing. And all of us are facing a battle today in our culture. We know our culture isn't becoming more and more sanctified, more and more Christian, more and more in agreement with our beliefs or our values. No, we see it all around us. We're on an increasingly upward climb in our faith, our love, our devotion, our growth, and our relationship with Christ. This incredible relationship that John wanted to share with the church at Ephesus is something that for all of us, it needs to be real or we won't invest in it like we should. We need to understand that God gave His Son he experienced separation from Christ so we could experience relationship with Him. That relationship is that meaningful to God that He would experience separation from His Son so you and I could experience that depth of relationship with Him. And John's saying, you understand that? You take advantage of this relationship? It's going to bring you joy. And what's the expression of joy? Sharing it being a light in an increasingly dark world. 